Section 5 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920. By G.K. Chesterton. The Horn of the Hero After reading Mr. Scott Moncrief's complete translation of The Song of Roland, one of the most remarkable and valuable adventures and achievements of modern letters, I happened to fall into a sort of rambling reverie which ended with the reflection that our civilization is condemned by the way in which a groom touches his hat to a gentleman. The logical connection may not be very apparent. I am not touching my hat to Captain Scott Moncrief, but sending him, I hope, a far heartier salute. He would reply, perhaps, with a military salute, and whether or no I am a gentleman, it is unlikely that anyone would employ me as a groom. But even when stated thus, the connection does, in a sense, begin to suggest itself. A military salute is a manly and open gesture, expanding the figure, because the whole relation is recognized and necessary, and men are not half ashamed of it. And so, if I take off my hat to a lady with a sweeping bow, trailing, if possible, a long curling feather in the dust, that also is a consistent and honorable motion. It is not a lowering, but rather an enlargement and liberation of the body and soul. But touching the hat, as the servants of the rich are expected to do it, is a small gesture, and even a cramped gesture, nay, even an incomplete gesture. It expresses respect and not reverence. Reverence means that a thing is in some way revered, and that means some movement of more or less mystical emotions. But respect only means that the thing is respectable, and respectability of that sort means merely that it keeps a gig, or more probably a motor car. The man does respect mere wealth and luxury, but the image of God in him is ashamed of respecting them, and therefore the very gesture with which he hails it is both hampered and hurried. The worship of this world, to do it justice, is half a hypocrisy. Therefore these very antics and attitudes of it are as wooden as a dance of Dutch dolls. No gentleman feels like this about saluting a lady, because there is a sort of legend of divinity about the dignity of woman. No soldier feels this about saluting a flag, because patriotism partakes almost of a religion. No believer feels it about saluting an altar, because it is religion. All these motions, lifting the hand, uncovering the head, kneeling, or for that matter rolling on the ground and kicking, are all gestures that can be completed, that can be rounded in full. A man need not feel ashamed of them, and a man does feel ashamed of saluting mere plutocracy. But there was a time when men were not ashamed of saluting aristocracy, though perhaps it was very long ago, much earlier than most people imagine. It was in the true period of feudalism, really before the beginning of the true period of medievalism. It belonged to the genuine dark ages, of which the Song of Roland is one of the few monuments, but that one, a mighty monument, like a mountain. This is, of course, only one of the thousands of truths brought out in Captain Scott Moncrief's able and admirable tour de force. He has dealt with the difficulty of any translation in a very original and yet practical fashion of his own. That is, he has translated with strict and unfaltering fidelity. Professor Stainsbury says it is nearer to the original than any other version he has read. And such exactitude, of course, renders impossible what is commonly called rhyme, so he has substituted a sort of rude but resonant assonance 
a broken resemblance to rhyme, like rolling echoes in the high rocks of the Pyrenees. This involves a certain quaintness in the cast of the sentence that seems barbaric but not inappropriate, and the endings are as near as translation can come to the untranslatable tongue of a people. To that GN in the old French that is like the clang and groan of iron and of bronze. It has many other merits besides technical ones, and there are lines which, literal as they are, are like fine lines first written in English, as when Roland breaks his horn with a last blow, fallen from it the crystal and the gold. But though there are a hundred other paths over this Parian height, if I may be allowed to follow my own, I would repeat that for these men of the Dark Ages, feudalism was an enthusiasm like nationalism, so that their service was not servile. And nothing remains of it now except the few ritual actions, still more free than the meaner modern actions, such as that accolade with the sword which now ennobles our least honest grocers and soap boilers. It is perhaps little better than a pun, but it is something better than a pedantry, to say that the chanson des guests might be translated as the song of gesture. I mean that the epic element partly consists in the idea that the action speaks for itself. Something that a man does seems to sum up everything that men in lesser forms of literature sing or speak or study or record. It is Ulysses bending his own bow that says all that could be said, as well as all that could never be said, about his title deeds to his own house or his wedding with his own wife. And something of this epic action, even in the more momentary sense of gesture, runs all through even the rugged and almost barbaric epic. Something of what Cyrano felt when he flung his last coin and cried, My quel guest, recurs in the Chanson de Guest. The Song of Roland is full of this sort of heroic pantomime. Roland moves through the story with sweeping and gigantic gestures like a man working miracles. But the miracles are also a sort of dumb parables. He blows his horn, he breaks his sword, rather he breaks the mountain in trying to break his sword. And all these things are spontaneous and even unconscious symbols, like those of a dumb demigod. Above all, they have this stamp of the subtle simplicity of the epic, that the symbols themselves are deeper than any words in which we can describe what they symbolize. But there are two of these vast gestures of the hero, these mere movements of his mighty hand, that remain in the memory like sublime sculpture. More clearly, I fancy, even than the breaking of the rocks or the blowing of the horn. They are gestures almost similar and yet strangely contrasted, and they express that paradox of pride and humility, of enjoyment of the world and disdain of it, which our pagan pacifists can never understand. One of them is where it is told of Roland that he stood before Charlemagne with a red and green apple in his hand and held it out to the king, offering him all the kingdoms of the world. And the other is when the paladin, in the last pangs of death and a dying confession of his sins, holds up his glove to God. These things give a far nobler meaning to the title of a man in action. The words have not only been worked to death, but to damnation, dragged in all the mire of modern materialism and rascality. A man of action has come to mean a man who does things without talking about them, because they will not bear talking about. The strong, silent man is silent for the same reason as the spy and the pickpocket. He does not speak of his deeds because they are unspeakable, and especially because they are unspeakably petty. But there is a kind of action which is larger and not smaller than any utterance. There is even a kind of dumb show that is clearer and not more cloudy than any definition. 
such are the large and lucid actions of the heroes of the epics and in them alone there is a meaning in the meaningless catchword about the value of deeds and not words it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the man of action had better not act unless he can act poetry he had better write poetry as most ordinary people do the tennysonian tag about echoes is true like many victorian platitudes the horn of roland unlike the horns of elfland really does roll from soul to soul and grow forever and forever the enthusiasm of a rising and very critical critic like mr scott moncrief is a type of its renewal there is something of immortal moment about that image of the king in his court riding home in triumph and hearing from the dark past behind them the dreadful note of doom indeed it is very like our present position when our rulers are supposed to have triumphed and made peace and through the chorus of praise come wild unaccountable voices from poland and italy and the intolerable irony of ireland however it be explained or applied there remains arrested forever the pageant of that halted march the great king is going home in glory and the traitor rides at his right hand the fair fields of the larger land lie before them in the sun when the echoes of the mighty horn come to them over the hollow mountains telling them the ancient tale that the best is betrayed and left behind End of section 5